He's probably talking to somebody because he's worship host. Conversing with the usher. Yeah, because he's worship host today, I think. Okay, good morning. Today is Sunday, September 4, 2016. We're at the First United Methodist Church of Fountain Valley, California, now called The Fount. And we have been studying the Gospel of St. Luke. And we are going to pick it up today in Luke 20 at verse 9. And... Uh, I'll go ahead and open us in prayer. Father, we just thank you. We thank you that you have left your word with us, Lord, to strengthen us by this means of grace. And then that this morning we can take from your table, Lord, which is another means of grace, that our souls can be uh, strengthened. They're frail in nature, Lord. And we need so much the grace of God to walk, to walk the Christian life, Lord. It's Nothing we can do in ourselves. Impart your word to our spirits and our souls today, Lord, in a way that we can uh, see the light of the gospel, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and have it be applied to our lives and to make the difference. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, picking it up at 20, verse 9. 20 is a chapter of... uh, the outright challenges of the people in authority to Jesus. Their ultimate problem is they didn't want to accept his authority. So the first nine verses that we did the last time we met, they wanted to ask Jesus about um, what authority he did things. And he asked them a question about the baptism of John. And this was, you know, like we used to talk about the wisdom of Solomon. Well, The wisdom of the Son of God. He is the wisdom of God, okay? These weren't people that were honestly questioning. These were people trying to cause him to stumble. So they, and that was the chief priests and the scribes. Now he's going to tell another parable. And remember what happened when his apostles asked him, why do you teach us in parables? Remember, he didn't start his ministry teaching parables. And he said, because to you it is given to know the things of the kingdom. So here's people who have made a choice not to see the light that is shining. And so Jesus will tell this parable where a man planted a vineyard, right at verse 9, and let it out to tenants. Let it out is what we call today renting. Let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant. And then they beat that servant and treated him shamefully, and he sent him away empty-handed. Now, can you guess who these servants might have been? No, the prophets, of course. They did to them whatever they will, and we can read what happened to all of the servants of the vineyard. If you go to Hebrews 11, and it'll talk about how they struggled for faith in the midst of difficult circumstances, because as the servants of God, they were treated shamefully. And now he sent a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. Don't miss in the parable the forbearance of God to give many chances. Three sets of servants, okay? People miss these little small things. They say, oh, your God, he's he's a God of judgment. He's so rough. Really? Did he... Should have known after two times that they might do the third time the same thing. 
And notice you might think he's a God that doesn't value his servants to put them in harm's way the way he does. Why would our Lord look at things differently? Because this world is not our home. And we have another life, a continuing life. So suffering shamefully in this life is just a small price to pay for the next life. But if this life was all we had, well, then God would protect his servants who would die, go into the ground and never be seen or heard from again. So you have to see the many sides of this, that the servants were willing to suffer because they saw another city whose builder and maker was God. Okay, then the owner of the vineyard says, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Well, but when the tenants saw him, don't miss the fact that we're tenants. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He lets out his vineyard to the tenants. But the vineyard belongs to him. And we are tenants, not owners. Okay. When, he, when the tenants saw the beloved son, they said, this is the heir. They took it as pay dirt. Let us kill him. And so the inheritance may be ours. They knew nothing about gaining the inheritance. Kill the beloved son and it's going to cause you to have an inheritance. They thought in the ways of men. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Because this is about what's to happen to Christ. He's going to be thrown out of the vineyard and killed. Kill them and throw them out of the vineyard. And so what they will, what he, they say, what then will the owner of the vineyard, vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. <clears throat> well, that's exactly what happened. In AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed and he gave the vineyard to the Gentiles. Paul says they won't be utterly cast out forever. They're cast out for a time. Jesus will even say at one point to the fullness of the Gentiles, okay? But they were cast out. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. They knew he was speaking to them. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. <laughs> You know, they prided themselves on how well they knew scripture. And uh, Jesus will uh, go on to say, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So they knew and they chose not to respond to the light. I'm having a passage come to me one second here. Psalm 2 at verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. What foolishness to speak to the beloved son in such a way who holds all authority given to him by his father. And... Uh, to, deserve, to decide instead to let that cornerstone fall on them. Now they're cooking up another question for him. Okay, we didn't we didn't get him to stumble in that question about the uh, baptism of John. 
The scribe and the chief priests, they come to him again. They sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable against them. Well, you perceived correctly. Okay. So what should your response be? Well, try repent. That's not what they did, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authorities and jurisdiction of the governor. You know, they weren't in charge as civil authorities in their own nation. The Romans were. So they asked him, here they go again. They feel so smart. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness. Remember, we had that lesson a couple weeks ago about how the Lord knows our thoughts, and we went through all those passages of Scripture. He perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, Show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. What are Caesar's things? Money. And to God the things that are God's. He hath shown thee, O man, what thou must do. Say, render to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. See, they knew it was the wisdom of God, and he got him again. See, now we're going to have another sect come, and this sect is the Sadducees. And we have a short meeting this morning, but I have a section from Matthew Henry that I just thought was so on point as he discusses this passage, because it's going to talk about marriage and the place of marriage in our life here on this earth. So they ask him a question, thinking again, they're going to stump him. Only foolish people can't believe in a life after death, because it's so clear from the scripture that there is life after death and that there are things we can't see. And so they ask him a question saying, teacher, which in the uh, Aramaic would be rabbi, teacher. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, you can go read this in the law, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her and likewise all seven had this woman, and she didn't have children with any of the seven, which is just kind of humorous, okay? Afterward, the woman also died. And in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, this is key, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him a question. So Jesus makes this point that marriage is for uh, for this age, 
I'm going to see if I can queue up my, my section here. Okay. This is what Matthew Henry will say. I think it's one of the best I've read, and I hope I'll be able to concise it down because it is so good. There is a great deal of difference between the state of the children of man on earth and that of the children of God in heaven, a vast unlikeness between this world and that world. And we wrong ourselves and wrong the truth of Christ when we form our notions of that world of spirits by our present enjoyments in this world of sense. The children of men in this world marry and are given in marriage. The children of this age, this generation, both good and bad, marry themselves and give their children in marriage. Much of our business in this world is to raise and build up families and to provide for them. Much of our pleasure in this world is in our relations, our wives and children. Nature inclines to it. Marriage is instituted for the comfort of human life here in this state where we carry bodies about with us. It is likewise a remedy against fornication, that natural desires might not become brutal, but be under direction and control. The children of this world are dying and going off the stage, and therefore they marry and give their children in marriage, that they may furnish the world of mankind with needful recruits, that as one generation passes, passes away, another may come and that they may have some of their own offspring to leave the fruit of their labors to, especially that the chosen of God in future ages may be introduced, for it is a godly seed that is sought by marriage. Quoting from Malachi 2, verse 15, a seed to serve the Lord shall be a generation to him. The world to come is quite another thing. It is called that world by way of emphasis and eminency. Note there are more worlds than one, a present visible world and a future invisible world, and it is the concern of every one of us to compare worlds, this world and that world, and give the preference in our thoughts and cares to that which deserves them. Who shall be the inhabitants of that world? They that shall be accounted worthy to obtain it, that is, that are interested in Christ's merit, who purchased it for us, and have a holy meekness for it wrought in them by the Spirit whose business it is to prepare us for it. They have not a legal worthiness upon account of anything in them or done by them, but an evangelical worthiness upon account of the inestimable price which Christ paid for the redemption of the purchased possession. It is a worthiness imputed by which we are glorified as well as righteousness imputed by which we are justified. They are made agreeable to that world. The disagreeableness that there is in the corrupt nature is taken away, and the dispositions of the soul are by the grace of God conformed to that state. They are by grace made and counted worthy to obtain that world. It intimates some difficulty in reaching after it and danger of coming short. We must so run as that we may obtain. The dead, that is, the blessed resurrection, for that of condemnation, as Christ calls it, is rather a resurrection to death, a second death, an eternal death than from death. What shall be the happy state of the inhabitants of that world we cannot express or conceive. And then he quotes in 1 Corinthians, you know, I have not seen nor ear heard. He said, see what Christ here says of it. They neither marry nor are given in, in marriage. Those that have entered into the joy of their Lord are entirely taken up with that. And they need not the joy of the bridegroom and his bride. The love in that world of love is all seraphic or of the seraphim and such as eclipses and loses the purest and most pleasing loves we entertain ourselves with in this world of sense. 
where the body itself shall be a spiritual body, the delights of sense will all be banished. And where there is a perfection of holiness, there is no occasion for marriage as a preservative from sin. Into the new Jerusalem there enters nothing that defiles. They cannot die anymore, and this comes in as reason why they do not marry. In this dying world there must be marriage, in order to the filling up of the vacancies made by death. But where there are no burials, there is no need of weddings. This crowns the comfort of that world, that there is no more death there, which sullies all the beauty and damps all the comforts of this world. Here death reigns, but thence it is forever excluded. They are equal unto the angels, Jesus says. In the other evangelists, it was said they are as the angels, but here they are said to be equal to the angels, here in Luke. As angels as peers, they have a glory and bliss no way inferior to that of the holy angels. They shall see the same sight, be employed in the same work, and share in the same joys with the holy angels. Saints, when they come to heaven, shall be naturalized, and though by nature strangers, yet having obtained this freedom with a great sum, which Christ paid for them, they have in all respects equal privileges with them that were freeborn, the angels that are the natives and aborigines of that country. Um, Remember there's a passage, I can't put my finger on it right now, where it says the things about our redemption, the angels long to look into. We are the naturalized citizens of heaven. They shall be companions with the angels and conversed with those blessed spirits that love them dearly. They've been tending to us all through our lives. And with an innumerable company to whom they are now come in faith, hope, and love, they are the children of God, and so they are as the angels will be called the sons of God. In the inheritance of sons, the adoption of sons will be completed. Christ is in a great adoption process right now. He's adopting and adopting and adopting. Hence, believers are said to wait for the adoption. This is in Romans 8. Even the redemption of the body. 8.23. For till the body is redeemed from the grave, the adoption is not completed. Now we are the sons of God, 1 John 3. We have the nature and disposition of sons, but will not be perfected till we come to heaven. They are the children of the resurrection. That is, they are made capable of the employments and enjoyments of the future state. They are born to that world, belong to that family, had their education for it here, and shall have their inheritance in it. They are the children of God being the children of the resurrection. Note, God owns those only for his children are the children of the resurrection that are born from above and are allied to the world of spirits and prepared for that world the children of that family. I just thought that was such a beautiful, why would we need marriage yeah, in the future state? Much better than I've understood it. Why would we need it? It will be like we won't have to uh, cook dinner. We don't have bodies. We don't need that service anymore. Yes. Yes. What book is that? That's Matthew Henry's commentary, which is in the public domain. Yeah. If you have Nook or Kindle, you can download it. It's perfectly free because it's not a valuable book. You understand that? Not one that like a bestseller that you would charge for. Okay. And I want to tell you, he, you know, he wrote a large commentary on the entire Bible. Yes. 
And it is amazing, his insights. And he's evangelical and he's a of reformed mind that it's all of grace and nothing that we have done that we're justified. But I love that passage on marriage because you will hear people say, I just can't imagine going to heaven. I just love my spouse. I'm not going to be married to my spouse. I know. You won't need it. I've had those thoughts. Yes. You won't need it. So, um, I think we're at 930 because I hear all that singing. (laughs) I've got five minutes. So, I wanted to at least start at verse 41. So, here he stumped him again. They asked him the question about what authority he stumps them. They asked him the question about the coin, you know, about uh, do they have to pay taxes? That's a pretty basic question. Lord, do I have to pay taxes? And then they asked him about this silliness using the Levitical law that a man would have seven brothers who had the same wife because they each kept dying. That's such a stupid question. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David says in the book of Psalms, now this passage of Psalms will be also quoted in the Pentecost sermon. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? You want somebody to ask you a riddle? Here's a riddle. How does this one work out? That David calls the Lord his Lord and he calls the Lord his son. Now, if you go back to Revelation 22, this is so beautiful. There is an answer to the question that Jesus asks. At 22, uh, verse 16, this is like the last page of your Bible, so easy to find. And this is what Jesus says, starting at verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things, all these things that are in the book of Revelation. For the churches, Revelation was given to the churches, okay? I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. He is the root because David came from him. And he is the descendant of David. As the root, David acknowledges Christ as Lord. As descendant, he acknowledges Christ as son. And the Lord Christ is the root, the beginning. Well, he is the Alpha and Omega, isn't he? The root and the descendant. And of course, the gospel that goes into the descendancy of Jesus coming from David. Okay. We can read, there's two genealogies in the Bible. There's one at Luke 4, the gospel that we've been studying. And in Luke 4, isn't it Luke 4? Maybe it's Matthew 4, let me think. The genealogy of Christ in Luke 3, sorry. Okay, Luke takes him as son of man back to Adam, son of God. But if you go into the Matthew genealogy, and remember Luke features Christ as son of man, Matthew, Christ as son of God, the genealogy of Jesus is, starts at Matthew 1.1, 1, 1. He takes Christ back to David 
and shows him as a uh, son of David, okay, the Christ. So this particular psalm that Jesus is quoting here in Luke 20 is the same psalm that Peter will challenge with in his Pentecost sermon, which you can find in Acts chapter 2. Okay, very, very important. Acts 2.34. Here is David. Christ is his Lord. Christ is his descendant, his son. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes. He spent a whole chapter dealing with them and their foolishness. And they like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. See, they've chosen to be loved by people more than loved by God. And you choose what you want in this life. Jesus told us that in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And they devour widows' wives and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. The greater condemnation because of that level of insincerity and uh, hypocrisy and deceit. To be acting as if you're one thing when you're actually in your business dealings, throwing widows out of their houses and yet making long prayers. And so I think we're going to stop right there at the end of chapter 20. And maybe, Bill, you would feel inclined to close us in prayer. Our Father, we thank Thee for today. We thank Thee for these words that Vicki has talked to us about. Lord, open our hearts to these words. Help us to live those words. And Father, we look forward to that day when we will be with you in spirit. Be with us today. Go with us. In thy name we ask. Amen. Amen. You have been listening to Bible Study Verse by Verse with Vicki Mulak. For more of these podcasts and some resources, please go to our website at www.biblestudyvbv.org. O-R-G. That's www.biblestudy, V as in Victor, B as in boy, V as in Victor. The VBV stands for verse by verse, dot org, O-R-G. There you can register and contact us, or just leave a comment. We welcome your feedback. Thank you. This is George Mulek.